0: You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 67 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. Yes, episode 67. I have all my life been obsessed with this number because for me it represents good and evil. A6 and A7. Also, the year 1967 was a really interesting year. A lot of cool things happened. But it doesn't matter what number you obsess about. You'll start seeing it everywhere eventually. So be careful. Let's get to the issue of what this episode is about. Well, in this episode we will listen to a talk by Dennis McKenna that he made in 1984 about ayahuasca. For those unaware, Dennis McKenna is the younger brother of Terence McKenna and unlike his older brother, Dennis decided to take a less public path in life and dedicated his life to the scientific study of psychedelic plants. In this talk, Dennis uses slides, but you can still enjoy what he is saying without seeing the images. It might be a bit of a technical talk, and some things he speaks about might go over your head unless you are a chemist or a trained scientist. But still, it is, if you are really interested in ayahuasca, really worth listening to.
1: uh, By way of preliminary remarks, there are a couple of issues raised by this work that uh, I find interesting and possibly will be of interest to some of the audience that are... Involved in using psychedelics in psychotherapy, so I hope that there'll be time to touch on that tonight, and also a couple of questions that this raises with regard to brain chemistry and the possible mechanisms by which these things work. This is all peripheral to to the work I'm going to talk about, which is that uh, for the past few years I've been working on the botany, chemistry, and ethnopharmacology, I guess you could call it, of of two Amazonian uh, hallucinogens. And uh, this was sort of a comparative study between the two, although they are different botanically, they have similar chemistry. And uh, so that's what I'm going to discuss, and then hopefully the... Uh, questions that issue from that, we'll get into some of these other topics that I uh, hope will come up. Uh, as most of you know, ayahuasca, or also called yahe in some parts of South America, is a hallucinogenic brew or beverage that's made from the bark, mainly of this plant, about in the Malpighiaceae, Banisteriopsis copy. Uh, together with various admixture plants, the one which is most commonly used, next slide please, the one which is most commonly used in Peru is uh, this plant here, Psychotria viridis, uh, which belongs to the coffee family. In Colombia, another admixture plant is commonly used, Diploteris cabarena, which is rather closely related to Banisteriosus copy. Now, these admixture plants are added into the ayahuasca to strengthen, prolong, and intensify the effect, the hallucinogenic effect of the drug. And the mestizo practitioners who use this drug claim that the admixture plants are necessary to provide the desired visionary experience. In manufacturing the ayahuasca, the stems of the banisteriopsis are stripped off the vine and chopped up, or the bark is stripped off, and then this is boiled, together with the leaves of the admixture plant, for several hours over a low fire. And then the brew, which results after several changes of water, the plant material is removed and concentrated to a fraction of its uh, original volume. And then the final product, which is a bitter, intensely bitter, coffee-colored brew, plays a very important role in ethnomedicine, in uh, folk medicine as practiced uh, among this group of people in in uh, Peru and Colombia, by interpretation of the, his own visions, the content of his own visions or his patient's visions, the ayahuascaro, as the practitioner is called that specializes in the use of these of this drug, can uh, divine the causes of illness or misfortune and uh, decide on an appropriate remedy or intervention. Often, uh, the causes of illness will be attributed to supernatural origins and the uh, remedies or intervention will involve uh, uh, exorcistic type manipulations or other kinds of magically based uh, uh, interventions. In other cases, however, the ayahuasca will result to botanical medicines uh, to treat illness. He and this slide just lists a few of them. Uh, An experienced ayahuasca is familiar with well over a hundred of these medicinal plants. This just shows a few of a selection of them from the different families, their common names, and some of the uh, biologically active secondary constituents plant uh, plant compounds that have been found in those that have been looked at. Actually, uh, Only a very small fraction of the commonly used admixture plants have been chemically examined. So this is potentially an area for pharmacologists and uh, pharmacognosists to look into for sources of new pharmaceuticals. The ayahuasquero learns about these plants and their properties during his initiatory, uh, his period of initiation. Uh, he, take, he learns about them by taking them as admixtures to ayahuasca and uh, along with the psychotria admixture, which is, which is a constant ingredient in ayahuasca. And the claim is made that uh, by doing so he learns about these plants and what their properties are. Now, whether this can be given credence or not is not clear, but certainly it must be said that over the years they have managed to uh, select from their environment a number of plants with interesting pharmacological properties, both psychoactive plants and otherwise. Well, the other Amazon hallucinogen that I'm going to talk about is manufactured from certain trees belonging to the genus Verola in the nutmeg family. And here's one specimen that's so utilized shown here. Uh, In uh, most parts or many parts of the Amazon basin, the Varola is made into a snuff. The varola tree produces on the inner cambial part of its bark a thick, sticky red resin, which is shown here. And the Yanomamo Indians and related tribes manufacture a hallucinogenic snuff from this varola resin. And the same group of Indians is also known to prepare a dart poison from the same species of trees that they use for the snuffs. And the mechanism of action of this dart poison has been uh, sort of a puzzle to ethnopharmacologists. It's still not resolved, but some progress has been made. Perhaps we'll get into that later. This just shows Yanomamo with his coated darts made from Varola resin. But in the region of the Amazon south of the Putumayo, in the area of the Rio Ampiaku and Rio Yaguasiaku, which are located between the Putumayo River and the Amazon River, which roughly parallel each other. Is that Peru or Brazil? In Peru, Peru. yes. The varola uh, is used in, in a different form than the snuff in that an orally active uh, form of hallucinogen is made. And in this method, the bark, the cambial strips are, are stripped off of the tree and the resin is scraped off and then... Uh, the uh, strips are soaked for a while, and then this aqueous infusion is results. And this is uh, cooked down over a low fire to the consistency of a thick paste. And then this paste is mixed with the ashes of certain other plants and rolled into little boluses, which are or- orally ingested. Uh, the effect is said to be very strong and to appear very rapidly. Okay, I guess, so these two... two uh, Amazon hallucinogens are, were the focus of my investigation, and uh, okay, although these hallucinogens are derived from completely different uh, botanical sources, their chemistry is very similar. Uh, Banisteriopsis copy the main source plant in ayahuasca, contains the beta-carboline alkaloids, which representatives of which are shown down here. The main alkaloids being harmine, harmaline, and tetrahydroharmine. While the admixture plant, Psychotria viridis or Diplotaris cabarena, contains primarily tryptamines such as NN-dimethyltryptamine. And again, a selection of different psychoactive or or biologically active (laughs) tryptamines are shown. An interesting feature of the pharmacology of dimethyltryptamine and 5 methoxy dmt is that they're not orally active. They have to be ingested parenterally, which is why the usual means of ingesting them is by smoking them, or in the case of the varrola snuffs, by, by that route. So that's the pharmacological rationale uh, behind the, the activity of the varrola snuffs. However, the orally active varrola pastes and ayahuasca may work by a different mechanism it turns out that the tryptamines may be orally active uh, if they're ingested in the presence of a monoamine oxidase inhibitor. This could protect the tryptamines from uh, deamination in peripheral tissues and allow them to be taken up into the central nervous system in the active form. And also conveniently enough, it turns out that uh, beta-carbolines are reversible inhibitors of monoamine oxidase, rather potent ones. They themselves are also hallucinogenic, but that uh, type of activity requires doses that are two to three orders of magnitude greater than the activity at which they're, the levels at which they're effective MAO inhibitors. And it also uh, is two or three orders of magnitude greater than the hallucinogenic threshold doses for the tryptamines. And in the case of uh, ayahuasca, the the brew contains primarily beta-carbolines with dimethyltryptamine from the admixture plants and in the case of the varolas, the constituents are mainly tryptamines either dimethyltryptamine or 5-methoxy DMT and uh, and lower levels in some cases trace levels of beta-carbolines so the question that I was one of the questions I was attempting to answer is does this mechanism of oral activation of the tryptamines via inhibition of monoamine oxidase makes sense. In other words, can it be experimentally approached in the laboratory, and can we get some data that would tend to confirm or disconfirm this? So this just basically summarizes some of my objectives. I wanted to look at a number of different samples, drug samples, from different parts of Peru uh, prepared by different practitioners to find out what the variation in alkaloid content was. In other words, how much was there and what kinds of alkaloid were there. (coughs) And secondarily, do the amounts of tryptamines or beta-carbolines in the drugs exceed the amounts that we know to be necessary for hallucinogenic um, activity? In other words, uh, is a, a, a typical dose above the known thresholds? A second, uh, a third consideration was to find out if the alkaloid content of the drug samples was similar or how similar was it to that of their source plants. Obviously, in the process of of preparing the drugs, they're subjected to some rather drastic uh, boiling and other extractive processes, so it's possible that this could affect the chemistry of the active ingredients. And the fourth question was, are these drugs active as monoamine oxidase inhibitors? And if so, which of the constituents are primarily responsible for this activity? And uh, in connection with that, I wanted to find out if, since these uh, drugs are, rather than being single compounds or rather complex mixtures of compounds, I wanted to see if there might be some synergistic uh, action, at least as far as MAO inhibition was concerned. So in order to accumulate some of this analytical data on the composition of these drugs, I used a number of analytical techniques, including HPLC, high-pressure uh, liquid chromatography, that is, uh, gas chromatography, and uh, thin layer, and, uh, and, ga- and in some cases, gas chromatography, uh, mass spectrometry. This just shows a typical <coughs> HPLC profile of an ayahuasca sample with the major... Four constituents and their uh, order of elution. So this shows the results of an HPLC uh, quantitation of some samples made by different practitioners from different parts of Peru. And uh, what we find here is, not unexpectedly, there is quite a bit of variation in the alkaloid content, both in terms of the total alkaloids, which are shown here, and also in terms of the proportions of various constituents. Uh, the same four constituents were pretty much constantly present uh, in all of them. That is, harmine, tetrahydroharmine, DMT, and harmaline, more or less, uh, in that order. What are the names of the left, by the way? Oh, okay. Well, these these are just the, the samples are named basically by the person who got them, uh, or that they were obtained from. So, and their place of origin and the name of the ayahuascaro is how these samples were identified. And this shows the alkaloid contents in terms of the milligrams per gram uh, dry weight. These samples were lyophilized for analysis. And uh, then this just shows the percent of the total alkaloid. So as you can see, they do both in terms of absolute alkaloid content and in terms of the proportions of various constituents, they do vary quite a bit. And obviously, uh, a question is, where does this variation come from? Well, obviously, one factor is going to be variability in methods of preparation. In other words, how much plant material is used, how long it's extracted, how much admixture is added, uh, and so on. And another uh, source of variation may be the chemical uh, differences between cultivars of Banisteriopsis copy. Um, The ayahuascarals recognize... Uh, up to ten different cultivars, which they give different names to and make different claims for, claim that they vary in their strength and their effects. Um, I was able to look at some of these, I don't have a slide of it, but I did find that there was quite a bit of variation in alkaloid content, but it wasn't possible to, the sample wasn't sufficient to actually correlate it to different cultivars, and I suspect that environmental conditions that the plants are grown under make uh, quite a bit of variation in the strength and, uh, and proportions of alkaloids. Okay, so this is a similar slide, except that it uh, shows the HPLC quantitation of the alkaloid content of five samples of ayahuasca prepared by these two gentlemen, and they collaborate in the preparation of their brews, Don Fidel and Don Juan, and draw their source plants basically from the same garden. So they have uh, cultivars that have been established for some time of both the Banisteriopsis copy and the Socotria admixture. And uh, in this case, we find that there's remarkable little variation from batch to batch, uh, both in terms of total alkaloid content and in terms of the proportions of various constituents. They are actually fairly close uh... between different batches and it appears that uh, there that the in that in the process of manufacturing the brew given a source of genetically uniform source plants these practitioners are able to exercise what you might call a fairly high degree of pharmaceutical quality control from batch to batch and trying to relate this uh... this information to the amount of active compounds that would be present in a typical dose of ayahuasca, we can get a ballpark idea by looking at the average of these five samples, which is shown down here. And if we say that a typical dose is 100 milliliters, which it's usually close to that or perhaps slightly less, we can say that 100 milliliters of ayahuasca would contain around 728 milligrams of total alkaloid. Most of that would be harmine, 467 milligrams, 65%. And followed by tetrahydroharmine, followed by DMT, there would be about 60 milligrams of DMT and about 40 milligrams of harmilene. Uh Well, this, is, this data can be interpreted based on what we know about the required threshold doses Uh, for the activity of these compounds, and uh, we can see that, uh, in the case of DMT, there's about 60 milligrams in a 100 milliliter dose of this drug, so that's well within the ballpark. Uh, I think threshold activity uh, in a fully grown adult is around 15 milligrams, but optimal activity or the full spectrum of effects is observed around 50 to 75 milligrams. So this figure is well within that ballpark, assuming that it can somehow be orally activated. As far as the beta-carbolines, though, uh, the contents of all of them are well below the amounts known to be hallucinogenic for that class of compounds. Uh, For instance, harmine is known to be orally inactive, and Sasha can correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, but it's known to be orally, there may be new work, it's known to be orally inactive in doses in excess of one gram. And harmoline exhibits threshold activity around three to 400 milligrams. And the amounts of these beta-carbolines found in these drugs are well below, so a couple of orders of magnitude, below those levels. So from this we can infer that the activity of ayahuasca as a hallucinogen is probably due to the DMT and the assumption is that it may be orally activated uh, by the beta carbolines there's certainly uh, sufficient amounts of them to have uh, present to have that activity just i just want to say something about the admixture plants several admixture plant samples of psychotria were analyzed and one sample of Diploteris cabarina was analyzed and DMT was detected as the only major base in either sample. Uh, They basically can't be told apart. One is Psychotria, one is Diploteris, on the basis of uh, their alkaloid content, and it was fairly substantial, between 1.5 and 2 milligrams per gram in the dry weight, uh, in the leaves, dried leaves. Uh, So this is, botanically, it's remarkable in that it's such a clean source of DMT. Only traces of other compounds were detected okay when we look at the uh... similar quantitative data for some of the virola pastes and several samples of Yanomamo snuffs from venezuela these are the virola pastes with their different names native names and their place of origin and the person that manufactured it this is the number of the voucher specimen that they came from the species of the tree from which they were manufactured and the alkaloids that were detected expressed in terms of milligrams per gram dry weight and then the percent again of the total is shown out here and uh, this quantitation was done using uh, gas chromatography and what uh, I found was that unlike ayahuasca there's not only quantitative variation in the alkaloid content but considerable qualitative variation as well in other words the base composition of uh, different samples of these pastes, actually none is identical to any other one. So it appears that, and this is also true of the snuffs, it appears that the uh, pastes and the snuffs are a much more chemically variable uh, drug, and this may influence their pharmacology. In fact, it undoubtedly does. Uh, Again, trying to relate this to... uh, the doses that would be required to elicit hallucinogenic effects, if we look at the paste and snuff samples that have the highest alkaloid content, some of them have extremely low alkaloid contents, others have substantial amounts, 18 milligrams per gram, 15 milligrams per gram, and so on. Well, if we try to relate that to the dose and say, how much of this material, paste or snuff, would you have to ingest to exceed the threshold doses, Um, It really depends on uh, which constituent, DMT or 5-methoxy DMT, is the major constituent. Uh, If DMT is the major constituent, it would require somewhere on the order of uh, half of a gram to uh, five grams, uh, half of a gram to get threshold effects, five grams for the full spectrum of effects, which might be difficult if you're talking about ingesting four or five grams of snuff, although it wouldn't prevent present any problem uh, in, c- in the case of the orally active pastes. But if 5-methoxy-DMT is the major constituent, since it's an order of magnitude more active than DMT, then presumably about one-tenth of that amount would be required. So one-tenth to one-half of a gram if 5-methoxy-DMT is the major constituent. And this would be could be readily accomplished even if the route of ingestion was by snuffing. So from this we can infer, or we can speculate at least, that the most active paste and snuff samples are probably those that contain primarily 5-methoxy-DMT and as you can see some of them contain only 5-methoxy-DMT and in other cases where uh, both compounds are present 5-methoxy-DMT is usually the predominant uh, constituent okay this quantitative or qualitative variation found in the paste and the uh, snuff sample seems to be a function of the source plants and this slide just shows again not all but a selection of different source plants or related plants in the same family that were examined that were screened for alkaloids and uh, again some uh, specimens have no alkaloids alkaloids were not detected in other cases they do have the expected tryptamines, but the distribution, uh, both in terms of the type and uh, where they are, is different in in that sense, that in that uh, there was a distribution, different parts of the same plant uh, often had a different composition, and different collections of the same species often differed in their composition. As well, of course, as different species, which you'd expect. But uh, even within a species, there appears to be a great deal of chemical variation, and that probably is, again, related to seasonal or environmental factors. Another, perhaps the most significant finding on this, was that most of the paste and stuff samples were examined contained either did not contain beta carbolines, or at least they were not detected or in cases where they were detected they were only trace constituents Uh, these two compounds which the mass spectra shown were detected in two snuff samples and all the others uh, didn't contain uh, beta carbolines that were detectable at least using my methods so and the only way that these could be detected was by mass spectrometry so uh, because the concentration was so low. So this indicates that even in the cases where the snuffs, where the pastes rather, do contain beta-carbolines, they probably are not sufficient uh, to contribute significantly to its pharmacological activity. So it appears that... uh, In the case of the varrola pastes, uh, if they are orally active, in fact, they may be activated by some constituents other than the beta-carbolines, or there may be something else going on. Okay, so this just summarizes basically what was found with these two drugs, ayahuasca and the varrola, the myristicaceous uh, hallucinogens. In the case of ayahuasca, there was considerable quantitative variation, but the same constituents were consistently found in different batches. And harmine was uh, consistently the most abundant beta-carboline that was found, and harmaline was the least abundant, which is interesting because that's the reverse of their hallucinogenic activity. In other words, is the requires the lowest dose to manifest activity as a hallucinogen, but it's not found in ayahuasca in sufficient doses probably to do this. And the amount of DMT in most doses of ayahuasca did exceed the threshold dose that's known to be required for hallucinogenic activity of this compound. Uh, Leaving aside, or perhaps should be mentioned at this time, is that also in the presence of beta-carbolines or other MAO inhibitors, uh, significantly smaller amounts of DMT may be active because they may protect it from degradation and facilitate its reaching the the site of its activity. In the case of uh, the virola drugs, there was a lot of quantitative and and qualitative variation as well. And this appeared to be a reflection of the source plants. The major tryptamines found in the drugs were DMT and or 5-methoxy-DMT, and NMT and methyltryptamine was also usually present, but it was also uh, tended to be a trace constituent, except one sample had it as the main constituent. And... Uh, The third finding is that beta carbolines were not detected in most of these PACE samples, and in the cases where they were, they were trace constituents. Okay, so that sort of completed the analytical phase of this work, looking into the composition of these drugs and uh, trying to get an idea what the alkaloid uh, profiles looked like. So the next step was to investigate the activity of these drugs and some of their active constituents, as monoamine oxidase inhibitors. Uh, and for this I used an in vitro assay using uh, f- carbon-14 labeled serotonin as the substrate. And first I just tested several uh, synthetic beta carboline derivatives, or they do occur in nature, but they were synthetically manufactured, to get an idea of the structure activity relationships of these compounds in terms of their action as MAO inhibitors. And in this Assay: the parameter that's measured is the I50, which is the molar uh, concentration of inhibitor that's required to uh, inhibit 50% of the enzyme activity. This is the work reported for my thesis, and this is for comparison uh, work done by previous investigators. And uh, without getting into the details of structure activity, I just will say that in most cases, <coughs> the beta-carbolines turned out to be very good, very potent MAO inhibitors. This is, of course, known from previous work. But uh, in most cases, the I-50s were on the order of 10 to the minus 6 to 10 to the minus 7 molar. The most active of the beta-carbolines were actually uh, harming, and harmaline were very close, but they were an order of magnitude more active than the other ones active at around 10 to the minus 8 molar in in my assays. And uh, so they are very good uh, MAO inhibitors in vitro, and they are, of course, at least harming is the major constituent in ayahuasca. As far as the activity of mixtures uh, of beta-carbolines, I assayed those to see if there might be some sort of synergistic interaction between these three main constituents found in ayahuasca and found that basically there wasn't. That in other words, an equimolar mixture of ayahuasca of uh, the three uh, main beta-carbolines uh, had an I-50 that was intermediate between the most active, which was harmine, and the least active, which was tetrahydroharmine. So there doesn't, at least in vitro, appear to be synergistic activity of these compounds. And uh, mixtures of beta-carbolines reflecting the approximate proportions and percentages of these constituents also showed intermediate activity, slightly less than the equimolar mixture. Okay, so as far as the activity of ayahuasca itself as an MAO inhibitor, (coughs) this was just uh, done by a series of log dilutions uh, from the full strength brew. And what I found was that uh, even uh, at dilutions of many orders of magnitude, uh, these two samples, which represented the samples containing the most alkaloid, were rather effective as MAO inhibitors. Even at 10 to the minus seventh of the full strength, uh, this compound <coughs> shows inhibition more than 50% of the enzyme, and this one almost 50%, about 45% at that level. So it appears that in vitro, at least, Ayahuasca uh, is a very good, uh, very potent inhibitor of monoamine oxidase uh, even when diluted, when greatly diluted. Okay, so then in order to get a comparative idea of the activity of various tryptamine derivatives as MAO inhibitors uh, and compare them both to each other and to the beta-carbolines, I again did this structure activity uh, determination using the same system. And uh, figuring that since the substrate for the enzyme is a tryptamine, that these compounds might show some degree of inhibition, either as competitive substrates or as inhibitors in their own right. And basically, uh, again, without talking about the details of, of the structure activity, basically the finding is that the tryptamines were... Most of them did show some degree of inhibition in this system, but they were several uh, orders of magnitude less active than the beta carbolines, around 10 to the minus 5 or 10 to the minus 4 molar in most cases. Uh, the perhaps the most interesting finding is that N,N-dimethyltryptamine (DMT) was the most active of as an MAO inhibitor of the beta carbolines uh, of the tryptamines that were tested. In fact its activity was comparable to tetrahydroharmine, which was one of the least active beta-carbolines, but still not bad. Uh, So uh, perhaps this uh, finding does bear some relation to the question of the oral activation of DMT. Okay, so uh, having gotten some idea of the uh, activity of various tryptamines as MAO inhibitors, then I went on... To test uh, various uh, extracts and fractions from these Virola pastes, and what was done here was that the uh, the paste uh, extract was worked up for the assay, and then the alkaloid content was quantified with HPLC and run in parallel with the mixture what I call paste analogues, which were basically mixtures of the trip, the major tryptamines found in the same proportions and, and approximate concentrations as were found. In, in the paste extracts, and the thinking was that if the MAO inhibition in the paste extracts was primarily due or solely due to the tryptamines, that they would parallel very closely the activity of the paste analogues in which only tryptamines were present. Uh, if other constituents were contributing to the activity, then you would expect a differing I-50 for the paste extracts than for the analogues, mixtures so in the case of the three pastes which had the highest alkaloid content you can see that in most cases the curves parallel very closely and so the I-50 of the paste versus the analog of the paste did not differ uh, greatly so from this you can infer that the activity uh, what limited activity it has is probably due to the tryptamines in it Uh, this supposition is supported also by the fact that the range of the I-50s close, well matches the range for individual tryptamine constituents. In other words, it's not down toward the harmine end of it. And another uh, thing, which I don't have a slide of, but uh, several, a couple of samples uh, which were free of alkaloids, in one case a paste sample which lacked alkaloids, and in another case a, a fraction of lignans, from Varola, uh, lignans are another class of secondary compounds, were tested for MAO inhibition just to see if they might, other constituents might contribute to the activity, and basically none was found. The only thing that was observed was some degree of inhibition only at the highest concentrations. Uh, so it appears that the Varola paste are rather poor MAO inhibitors. and uh, what uh, activity they show is probably due primarily to the tryptamines. So it looks like, uh, in contrast to ayahuasca, uh, it may be necessary to look for some other mechanism to explain their oral activity, if, in fact, they are uh, orally active uh, hallucinogens. Well, one possibility... uh, is that their oral activity is not, in fact, due to the tryptamines at all. It might be due to some other constituents uh, in the resin. One possibility is, again, these lignans. Uh, my colleague, Don McRae, who uh, worked on virola, uh worked on the uh, activity of varrola as an arrow poison, has isolated several biologically active lignans from the resin and found that they do have effects on locomotor activity, uh, in suppressing locomotor activity, that are significantly greater than comparable doses of tryptamines. So it's possible that this may explain its activity as an arrow poison and may also uh, at least contribute to its oral activity. Uh, However, it's also possible to uh, speculate on another uh, mechanism for the oral activation uh, of the tryptamines in virola resin. So uh, it's possible to, spot, to postulate another mechanism, and this gets to your question, uh, whether DMT is a good substrate for, for monoamine oxidase. Uh, there have been uh, recent experimental investigations of DMT uh, metabolism in peripheral tissues. This has been done by a group in Alabama that's been investigating the possible role of DMT as an endogenous, endogenously produced hallucinogens. And, and they have found that DMT is actually a rather poor substrate for MAO. Uh, this slide just shows some of the other pathways that have been characterized for DMT uh, degradation in peripheral tissues, basically the rat liver homogenate, or in some cases the rat liver microsomal uh, fraction. Uh, MAO will metabolize DMT and other tryptamines to indolacetic acid. And uh, this constituent is detected in the incubation mixture, but it appears uh, late in the incubation. And uh, they have speculated that DMT is not directly deaminated to uh, indoleacidic acid by MAO, but rather that it is more, it is uh, a better substrate for the hepatic monooxygenases, the so called MFOs, the uh, hepatic uh, uh, microsomal drug metabolizing enzymes, which metabolize it to uh, various things: six hydroxy DMT appears to be a minor metabolite, and DMT oxide, which then by various uh, intermediates and steps, can eventually become. Via this intermediate, become demethylated to form N-methyltryptamine. This then is readily metabolized by MAO. It's about an eight. It's metabolized about 18 times faster than DMT by MAO. So it's probably that the IAA that shows up late in the incubation actually is a, a tertiary metabolite, and the precursor is primarily N-methyltryptamine. But uh, There are other aspects of this pathway, too. For instance, under other conditions, the same intermediate can go via this route of cyclization to form uh, tetrahydro-beta-carbolines, which that's uh, an aspect that uh, I want to touch on later. But in other words, this is only uh, some of the the possible uh, routes of transformation of this DMT, this endogenous hallucinogen. Well, assuming, for the sake of argument, uh, that perhaps in the peripheral tissues DMT is primarily uh, inactivated or metabolized via this mechanism involving these microsomal MFOs, uh, then it's possible to, to propose a mechanism, an alternative mechanism, whereby uh, it could be orally activated by other constituents in the varrola resin. Uh, st- recent structure activity uh, studies of MFO inhibitors have shown that compounds uh, containing the methylene-dioxyphenyl group, which is, uh, for those of you who are not chemists, I don't know that it would, but it anyhow, it is a particular chemical configuration. It's the same configuration, as a matter of fact, as found in uh, MDMA and some of these phenethylamines, but it turns out that the pharmacophore the required chemical configuration for MFO inhibitors, are compounds containing this methylene-dioxyphenyl moiety. And it turns out that virola resin uh, is a particularly rich source of secondary compounds which do contain this moiety. So it's possible that some of these constituents, by inhibiting uh, (coughs) this uh, MFO-mediated pathway of degradation, could protect the tryptamines from uh, peripheral degradation and allow them to be uh, orally activated. Uh, and this uh, mech- this alternative mechanism may underlie the oral activity of the verola pastes. It may also contribute to the activity of ayahuasca. Uh, the action of beta-carbolines as MFO inhibitors, I don't think, has been closely looked at. Uh, However, in the case of ayahuasca, it's not necessary really to invoke that mechanism uh, because there are sufficient beta-carbolines to effectively inhibit MAO. It may also be that by blocking the inhibition of MAO in the case of ayahuasca, that there are via feedback mechanisms this pathway may also be affected. So, although this last part of it is purely speculation, it's not been shown that by inhibition of MFO that you can orally activate DMT or some other of these psych, uh, hallucinogenic tryptamines. Uh, it's at least a reasonable speculation. And that is basically the substance of, of my findings that uh, at least that's what I'm going to conclude with tonight so if anybody more questions or There's something that wasn't clear to me from uh, this presentation
0: the, the ayahuasca pres, uh, preparation mm-hmm. what happens if uh, someone just boils uh, the ayahuasca by itself and then the constituents by themselves ingest those and together separate? no separately they're always taking
1: nothing the- they're always Either taken react. together. Separately, they're inactive. Although, it, well, I should qualify that, because ayahuasca is occasionally taken by itself. In other words, it's occasionally manufactured only from banisteriopsis copy. And there may be two things going on. It's possible that it's concentrated much more, or they may use more plant material, so that, so that in that case you do get up into these levels where the beta-carbolines begin to become hallucinogenic. That's a possibility, in other words, they contain more than the other. Or uh, it's possible that it's not really a hallucinogen, but it does something. Right? When it's taken, when it's manufactured by itself, it does something. It, It may be a general stimulant, or it may not be, the activity may not be the same. They don't claim that ayahuasca is inactive by itself. They claim that in order to make it a hallucinogen, in order to make it a visionary experience, you have to have the admixture plant.
2: That's the thing. So it may have 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 other kinds of... Have
1: I checked this out? No. No. Because I haven't... This is one approach, uh, but I haven't had an opportunity to manufacture my own ayahuasca in fairly careful conditions where I could control the amount of admixture plants or whether admixture plant was added or not. This is one direction that I think it would be good to go, to look at it. Because actually now, with the fa- with fairly simple, simple chemical methods, it's possible for us to know more about the composition of ayahuasca, or the drugs, the particular brews that we make, than the ayahuascaros ever dreamed of knowing. So you can actually combine, you know, the ancient, shamanic approach to it with a little thin layer chromatography, and I think you could get pretty far in, in in altering the quality and the activity of your samples. They do claim that they there are many different kinds of ayahuasca with many different kinds of activity, depending on which, depending on how much of the of the main admixture plants and which other admixture plants are added into it. I mean, for instance, they will often add solanaceous admixture plants into these. Detura and or Brunfelsia or other things. There are many interesting plants that they use in conjunction with ayahuasca, which may themselves have activity, you know, just by themselves. So this is another thing that needs to be looked at. This admixture plant technology is pretty uh, involved and sophisticated. In the case of the ayahuasca, when they first looked at it, they found beta-carbolines. Well, they they extracted it and initially found beta-carbolines, which would stick up like a sore thumb because they'd be there in much greater amounts than the tryptamines and would be much more easily detectable. It's possible that you wouldn't see the tryptamine if you weren't looking for it. And in they other didn't words check
2: then the clinical activity. Well when they found the beta carmelines,
1: they thought they knew they thought they understood it all because these were compounds that had been known for years. I mean they'd been first uh, isolated from I think Piganum harmala in the eighteen sixties. So they looked at ayahuasca and they said, aha, harmine, harmaline, tetrahydroharmine, we've seen all these and we know what they do it's and so the specific uh... although they don't know what they do that's a whole they're actually just now finding that they have a whole spectrum of biological activities some of which is neurological and some of which is completely off in other areas uh... the activity of the beta carbolines uh, the pharmacology in humans has just not been thoroughly looked at actually i mean the the most uh... The study usually cited is Naranjo's uh, work, which is, I think, most reported in the ethnopharmacologic search. And it was uh, it was not systematic. Many of the trials were based on one trial and in, in one person. So the doses required and all this, it's still... Although since, there's been a lot of work done on this. I mean, I think, but it's actually a question, you know, Not all the beta-carbolines are hallucinogenic, you know, but they may have other activities or interact with other systems. Like, it's possible that by, uh, simply by uh, uh, inhibiting peripheral MAO, if you had a brew made solely from banisteriopsis, it's possible that you could affect your your own amine metabolism, you know, depending (coughs) on other... Maybe that's a mechanism. In other words, maybe it uh, maybe it affects the metabolism of your own DMT. You know, preventing the breakdown. I mean, I don't really think so, but it's possible. A dietary sources is another thing. Yes, and I didn't. Yes, the ayahuascarls are very uh, insistent that you have to follow a particular diet in order to get the full benefit out of ayahuasca, and in its in its use in ethnomedicine. It's different than what you might call an acute hallucinogen. Mushrooms, psilocybin, is an acute hallucinogen, I would say, in that you take it and something happens usually. I mean, it's pretty... You get off and then you come down and then it's over. Ayahuasca, actually, the way they employ it is to take it over a period of time frequently while observing this diet. And the common... Uh, observation is that in the initial sessions the initial trips don't do that much Uh, you don't get off so so well but then as you continue to take it and continue to follow the diet uh, without increasing the dose it eventually begins to become stronger and stronger as you take it and also it's claimed that these effects last over a period of time in other words a big component of the Of the imagery has to do with dreams, and they're very tuned into alterations in dream states and this sort of thing. So I think ayahuasca is not—it really isn't that well understood what's going on. But there are there are a number of things, some of which may have long-term effects that are going on. I think that that. well, since you brought it up, I think that, that beta-carbolines, this combination of beta-carbolines and tryptamines that we see uh, in these two drugs, I think the real sort of importance of them is that we find the same combination in brain chemistry. I and mean, it's now known that DMT is produced endogenously in normal human brain. It's not known exactly what it's do- what it does there. And it's also known that beta-carbolines are produced in the brain and in various other parts of the body. And since, as shown on that next to the last slide, since uh, uh, beta-carbolines are uh, a product of the metabolism of DMT in the periphery, there's all sorts of opportunities for them to, to feed back on that metabolism because of their action as MAO inhibitors, because of their action as inhibitors of the uptake of neurotransmitters. And, you know, they are just very very uh, this particular combination of drugs that you find, of alkaloids that you find in these plants are very close to what may be going on in brain chemistry and by looking at the mechanisms by which these plants work maybe we can get a bead on, uh, you know, how mechanisms behind schizophrenia and this sort of thing, but I, I do feel that this, these classes, the beta-carbolines and the tryptamines, are an important place to look because they are essentially the drugs that we have in our bodies. They're the internal ones. And, uh, and also, I get you're probably aware of the connections that have been found recently between beta-carbolines and their formation in ethanol metabolism and this sort of thing. Uh, beta-carbolines and tetrahydroisoquinolines are, will appear, will can be detected in the urine a few hours after ethanol loading, and it's thought to be a reaction between tryptamines and acetaldehyde, which is the metabolite of ethanol, and they've, there have been attempts to link this to an etiological mechanism in alcoholism. Uh, I don't really think that that's going on, but it certainly is a possibility. Um, It should be looked at, definitely, because these beta-carbolines have a a wide spectrum of, of activities at low doses. You know, their hallucinogenic activity is perhaps the least manifest. In other words, they're inhibitors of amine uptake, they're MAO inhibitors, they're mutagens, they're known to intercalate into DNA. They're known to be phototoxic or photoactive is a better term. Uh, so, who knows? It's really wide open. This, anybody have anything else they want to say? Thank you. That's Thank you. enough. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this recording has been lifted from the Psychedelic Salon podcast, which can be found at psychedelicsalon.com. I will post links to this site in the program notes at naturalbornalchemist.com. Now for some music. Sebado was the Beatles of my teenage years. And Eric Gaffney of that band later went on to create his own solo career under the name Jesus. The track I will play now is called In Check from his album Stop Eating Animals. You can check out more of his music at jesuschrist1.bandcamp.com Freedom is in the mind. You
2: knew that my feelings were true would you then love only me? If I could trust you, would you trust me completely? If I were to let it held in check while I'm drowning up to my neck in a sea of white lies say it's not a fact it's trust that I lack you've told me the truth